my voice and my brain are reminding me that I've taught a lot this week. So if Spanish comes out, no guarantees, okay? Um, if, uh, and, and Joan, you understand this, and uh, I'll go back to a Spanish country, and it's like, hola, Come, you know, it's like it's like pulling it out of the archives, and then by the end of the week, there's like Spanish words coming out and phrases coming out. I was telling my kids, um, we were, I was staying at a hotel, and they would have drivers that would come and get us and take us to the church in the morning, and so I was supposed to be ready at 8:50. My driver was supposed to come. I have no idea who this is or what car he's in. He just shows up, and I jump in the car and we drive to the church, and um, and so I'm waiting. 8:50 rolls around. 8:55, nine o'clock. 9.05, and I'm supposed to teach at like 9.30, and we got to go through all the traffic to the other side of town. And um, I don't have any cell coverage. So uh, so I go back in the hotel, get on the Wi-Fi, and I text one of my, my pastor bilingual pastor friends. I said, hey, no one's here. What's going on? And so he texted, oh, he'll be here. He'll be here. Don't worry. So I'm waiting, you know, 9.10, 9.15. Finally, this white car pulls up. Guy jumps out, looks at me, big smile, motions me over. I'm like, oh, great. So I go over, throw my, my bag in the back, jump in the car, and he's like, and he runs off. I'm thinking he's using the banyo or something. So he goes off and, and comes back and jumps in the car. And I, it, I just have one of those weird feelings. And I looked at it and I said, uh, vamos a la iglesia? He's like, no, el, el aeropuerto. And I'm like, I don't want to go to the aeropuerto. I want to go to the iglesia. You know? And, uh, so he was just some guy and, uh, the hotel had arranged for some other gringo guest, um, who wanted to go to the, the aeropuerto. And, uh, so I, I, I'm thankful I, I asked because it was like, uh, anyway, or I could have been, that would have been a bad morning. Anyway. So uh, anyway, I don't know what's going to happen this morning. My brain is tired. I, my, my, I don't know what language this is. But anyway, so turn with me in your Bible to First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. <laughs> no, I am speaking in tongues. That's the problem. It's a, a fully cessationist. But uh, anyway. Um, Okay, where are we? Uh, we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul is writing, remember he's writing a letter to this brand new early church. This is one of the first letters he writes, in the, uh, not just for Paul, but this is one of the first letters written in the whole New Testament. The church is brand new. Paul has um, established this church in Thessalonica and then persecution arose. Eventually he had to leave. So he is elsewhere, and he's waiting to hear back about the Thessalonians. How are they doing? Are they standing firm? What's going on with the persecution? And so he's waiting and waiting and waiting. He can't stand it anymore. So finally he sends Timothy over to check on them. Timothy brings back a a glowing report that they are walking with Christ. They are sharing the gospel. They're loving one another, and they're enduring the suffering well. And so Paul is so excited. He picks up his pen, and he begins writing a letter of thankfulness to them, and we call that letter 1 Thessalonians. And so as you noticed, as we've journeyed through most of this letter already, um, this is a great church. This is a model church. And uh, not that they're perfect or don't have problems, but so many things that we can look to the Thessalonians for uh, by way of example and encouragement. And, and one of the themes, it's our theme for 2022, which is slowly coming to an end, uh, is, is pulled from this book uh, it is the theme that we excel still more, particularly in caring for one another. And we're going to actually see where that phrase comes from today in our time together. So just by way of review, where have we been uh, last time in chapter 4, verses 1 to 8? We looked at that last time, and he calls us in this 
section here that we would really excel, really aim to please God, to live to please God uh, in what we do. So look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, finally, brethren, uh, we request, we're, there we go, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. There's our phrase. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And so he uh, he talks about our goal really there is to please God, and uh, we do that by excelling still more in that endeavor, uh, remembering that Christ calls us to obey, to please God, but he's also the means by which we can obey. And uh, we don't want to be confused about God's will. He says right there, I love this, uh, you don't have to guess about God's will, here it is, it's your sanctification. Uh, more than a job, more than a decision, more than the school you go to, the person you marry, more than the restaurant you choose to go to this afternoon, God's will is that you would be more like Christ. And, and that's, that's one of those life-shaping realities, if we can really digest it. Uh, we want to make all those other secondary decisions, but, but God's primary focus for all of us in those decisions is that we would aim to please Christ. And if you think about it, aim to be like Christ in sanctification. If you think about it, if you're striving to be like Christ, and if you're viewing every moment of life as an opportunity to grow, to be more like Jesus, that's going to shape your decisions in a, in a powerful way, isn't it? Uh, it's going to help you think about where to put your money or not put your money. It's going to help you to know what people to hang around and what people not to hang around. It's going to help you with uh, prioritizing life in terms of jobs or work or house or a relationship. So the will of God is our sanctification, that we would grow in holiness and Christ-likeness. And the reality is, if we're thinking with the mind of Christ, we're probably going to have the wisdom to make all those other decisions, aren't we? Uh, that doesn't always mean everything is obvious, but it, what it does mean is we're going to be in the lane of the will of God, and that's really what's important. Um, he talks specifically in Sanctification and Holiness about the issue of sexual sin and avoiding sexual sin, and we spent a whole uh, time last time thinking about that in terms of self-control, in terms of indulging desires, including, in, in, including thinking about how our sin affects other people and that God is the avenger and all those things. And that uh, when we reject God's will for personal holiness, whether it's in sexual sin or some other area, uh, verse 8 says there, we're not rejecting man, but we're actually rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to us. We, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God when we walk in sin instead of purity. Okay, so with that in mind, that little bit of review there, if you missed last time, uh, we're going to look at a second point here, excel in loving others, excel in loving others. Look with me at verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Okay, so th this is where we really get our theme phrase for the year, where we're excelling still more in loving for others, or we call it excelling still more in caring for others. It comes uh, right here, okay? So let's, let's see, hang on back up. There we go. 
Oh, weird. Okay, well, I guess the animation's gone there, so you can see the whole thing, fill all your blanks in right there. Uh, look with me at, at the first point there. He says, now, considering this, this issue of loving one another, he says, you don't need us to write to you because God has already told you to love one another. And uh, you see some passages there. Where in the Bible... Um, and I know you got the verses there, but give me the contexts. Where in the Bible does God say love one another? Yeah. Yeah, the two greatest commandments, right? And, and where do we where do we hear about those? Where do we find the great commandments? Okay, it might be Exodus. In the Gospels. Yeah, these are these are those red letter verses that you know we want to have them in our heads, right? Because uh, the two great commandments, someone might come up and say, you know, what does God want me to do? You know, love God, love people. Where is that? So those passages there, Leviticus nineteen eighteen is where we see the command to love others as you already love yourself, right? Uh, someone said Exodus, Exodus twenty is one of the places we find the Ten Commandments. Uh, which is um, important, you know, putting God first. But uh, the the parallel passage to that, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and chapter 6, is where we get the command to love God with all heart, soul, and strength, Deuteronomy 6, 5. And then like Joan is saying, we get those passages repeated in the New Testament. I put a few of them there for you. Matthew 22 is when uh, the guy comes up to Jesus and says, what are the, what are the, what's the most important commandment? And God says, you know, love, love God with all your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you already love yourself. That's Matthew 22. And then what happens in John 13? Yeah, 13, right? Yeah. What happens in John 13? Yeah, a new command I give you. That's right. Remember, Jesus uh, is gathering his disciples. He's going to the cross uh, shortly. And he says, uh, no longer uh, uh, do I call you um, strangers, right? I, I call you my friends. And, um, and he says, I, I'm going to give you a new commandment and that you love one another as I have loved you. And so not just love your neighbor as you already love yourself, it's now love one another the way God has loved you in that. So that's where those commands come from. So Paul is, Paul is assuming that uh, his readers are aware of the Old Testament, and are aware of the commands of Jesus. And so he says, you don't have any need of anybody to tell you that because you know God has commanded you to love one another. Now, now look at this. He says, but, and you're already practicing it. You're already doing it. And, you know, as Pastor Terry and I have talked about, uh, you know, this letter and this theme and all that, and the elders think about this, we, we feel like we, we have a Thessalonian church. Um, it is incredible. And as one of the shepherds here um, it is incredibly gratifying to see how you all love each other so well. It really is. And um, churches, churches can be dangerous places. Uh, some of you have come from churches like that. Uh, and we know that we're not the perfect church. Good night, we're not the perfect church, right? We have lots of room to grow, and, and we, we mess up, and, and we, we can sin against each other and all that. But, but I think, I think the, the, the constant theme, at least that I see, and it's my experience is a body of people that loves each other. And um, so so good job in that, and praise the Lord for that. Um, I think what Paul tells the Thessalonians, he says, hey, you know, you don't have anybody to tell you that, you're already doing it. Indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia 
We can just say Hood County, okay? Hood County. Uh, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And this is our, this is our theme that, that we would continue. Um, it is not possible to reach a threshold of loving people perfectly, right? There's always room for growth. So we're always looking for ways to expand that, grow that, improve in that. And uh, that's what's going on here, and that's what's going on in the Thessalonian church. Now, it's interesting, then he gives sort of three areas that I think are connected to this idea of loving one another. And it's interesting because um, I I don't know anywhere else in the Bible that really kind of puts it like this. So look at this. He says, uh, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So, so the question is, uh, what does this love for one another look like? Uh, what does loving one another well look like? And, and especially, what does a love for one another look like that is a witness to outsiders? That's, that's part of his point here, right? You know, do this so that other people are going to be encouraged. So, so look at that list there. What, what do you, what do you think it means to lead a peaceable life? What do you think about that? Well, you're a peacemaker instead of... Yeah. Yeah, you're a peacemaker instead of a troublemaker. That's exactly what it is. Now, I know in the church, we would never have contentions, strife, Arguments, right? We would never do that in the church. As church, right? Is that? You're looking at me like, no, Pastor Keith. Yeah. Churches can be the worst at this, can't they? You know, you've got the, uh, the, 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 the padded pew people and the wood pew people. You, you've got the folks that like the rock band and the, and the folks that like the hymns. You've got this and that. And people split their churches over this sort of thing. Um, it is so easy. To quarrel, to fight, to have factions. Remember Paul talks to the Corinthians and there's this group over here saying, I'm of Apollos and other here, well, I'm of Paul. And then there was the super spiritual group where we are of Christ, you know, and little groupy things going on. And, and right, I mean, these are all temptations that we can face. And Paul says, if we're not even getting along in the context of a local church, how on earth are, is, a, is an unbelieving world going to take us seriously when we say, we have the message of how you can be reconciled to God? And they're going, you can't even reconcile with one another. So to live a peaceable life, right, that's a witness to the world. And, and you know what that means? Because um, I'm like this, you're like this, we all have opinions, we all have different preferences, uh, we, we all feel strongly about certain things. Uh, we're going to miscommunicate. We're going to put self. And what this means is if we're going to be a peacemaking church that exemplifies peace, we have to be dying to ourselves every day. Preferring one another is more important than ourselves. And prioritizing what God says is important, not our own preferences and choices. And uh, that's hard, isn't it? Because we all, we're all like that. We're all selfish by nature. Uh, but Paul says, here's what love looks like, okay? Pursuing peace with one another. Living a peaceful life. Being a peacemaker. Rather than uh, l- uh, living in conflict and strife and, and things like that. Uh, how about this? And th- this is like a literal translation. Like, like I didn't... Mind your own business. <laughs> mind your own business. What do you think that means? It means mind your own business, right? It's, 
uh, it's it's actually really profound. Now, now, this is not saying if you see a brother in sin, you go, oh, that's not my fault. Because because we're supposed to love one another enough to go to one another to say, hey, there's something here that needs to be addressed in your life. But when he says mind your own business, I, I think what he's saying is, why don't you think about dealing with your own heart first? You know, you you make your primary ministry your own. Back up a few verses. Your own sanctification. That's God's will. So let's make that first, and, and let's not let's not assume that my role is to just point out everybody else's faults and 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 correct everybody else all the time. And you know, mind your own business. Um, stay focused on what what really matters, and and don't don't get off into things that are either going to be inappropriate or I'm, I'm critiquing people all the time. Um, we, we could take it a different way. Mind your own business, meaning don't get distracted by things that don't matter. Um, politics, cultural things, um, world events, are those important in one level? Absolutely. Do we have a stewardship in terms of some of that? Yes, yeah, sometimes we do. But Paul says, don't, don't get distracted by focusing on all these other things that aren't really ultimately your business, Right? God's going to work out his plan in those things. Your, your business is walk with God, guard your heart, pursue peace in the body of Christ, love one another, share the gospel, stay focused. That's your lane. And, uh, you know, we get, we get, we get distracted, we, we get, uh, you know, discouraged because we're, we're, we're making our business something that God says is not our business. And, um, you know, we do that too. When, when, when we assume responsibilities that God has not given us. So mind our own business, stay in your lane. I think, I think what he's getting at, thinking in the context, you know, work on your own sanctification primarily, right? Do that. So, right, uh, lead a quiet life, attend to your own business. How about this? Work with your own hands. Um, this is interesting. Paul's going to talk to Timothy about this. This was, this was a problem in emphasis, too. People that are freeloading in the name of Jesus. People that are taking advantage of other people because they're too lazy to work. Uh, even Paul says, look, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an apostle, but I don't want to burden you. Remember that back in chapter one? He said, when we came in, chapter one, chapter two, we came in. We, we didn't assume just because, you know, my business card says apostle Paul on it, that everybody just drops everything and provides us with meals and housing and, but Paul says, no, we, we worked hard because we didn't want to be a burden to you. And um, so, so here's the crazy thing. Do you know that the Christian work ethic is evangelistic? The Christian work ethic is a witness. How we work, how we labor, how we take responsibility for ourselves, how we care for one another is a testimony to the world. And, um, and, you know, and we understand, a footnote to that, we understand some people have legitimate needs, you know, a disability, an injury, and, and we're thankful for forms of assistance, and, 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 you know, we want to reach out and help one another. But that's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, uh, as much as we are able, we ought to work with our hands, uh, provide for our needs, uh, and not freeload and be a horrible example for Jesus. And, and you know, I, I, I tell my kids this, and, and young people, all right, so, so Warren's and, and, uh, and uh, see other Alcorns and Loopers. and yeah, I got a lot of you guys here, okay? You want to be like a radical bright light for Jesus. Show up on time. Do your job. Work hard like your boss is Jesus, okay? 
follow instructions, go the extra mile, right? I'm just, just stuff that the rest of you are going, well, of course, I, I, I did that, you know, that's past generations, that was called a normal work, work ethic. Now it's like, you want me to like come in at like 10 in the morning, you know, it's so early, you know, and you're going, that's, that's what happens. So, so young people, you can be a witness for, you can do what this is saying just by, uh, we say a normal work ethic, a godly Christian work ethic. And, uh, and we need to remember that as a church. We need to remember that in our workplaces. Um, it's so, guys, it's so easy to cut corners in the environment we live in today. It's so easy to, um, rob our employers. And, and yet we're working for someone else, aren't we? And so we want to do our best for him. And so he says that. That's the purpose, right? Verse 12. So you'll, you'll know how to behave properly toward outsiders. When we do these things, outsiders, meaning unbelievers, see that, and that's a witness, and we don't depend on others. Now, I know, again, um, you, you can imagine this where, where Christians are, are looking for handouts to unbelievers, and um, again, not that there isn't a time where uh, you know a government assistance might be you know actually needed. We, we're thankful for that. But what we're talking about is this worldview that says, "I deserve." It's it's we, we call it the entitlement mentality. And what this is saying is a Christian should not be demeaning their witness by assuming that society, a, a fallen society, owes them something and should give them something. And you talk about that's a sermon that'll preach, right? We we just hit that out of the park if we wanted to. But anyway, for now we just understand that's the Christian work ethic, and uh, your work and how you work is an apologetic. It's evangelistic to a broken world that needs Christ. Okay, so we excel still more in loving others. We do that by um, these three goals, I think, and continuing because we can never, we can never ever love perfectly. So we want to excel at it. Okay. Now, watch this. Watch this. Next, he's going to say, give hope and comfort to those grieving loss. Give hope and comfort to those grieving loss. Look at this, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. So apparently, when Timothy came back with the report, he says, the, the Thessalonians are doing really well. They're, they're standing in persecution. They're loving each other. They're, they're accepting things as the, the word of God, not just the word of man. They're doing great. But there's some people that are really sad, people that are really grieving. And why is that, Timothy? Because they've had loved ones that have died, Christian family and friends that have died, maybe in the persecution, maybe just natural causes, and they're grieving the loss. And Paul says, let me help you with that. You need to think about losing Christian loved ones in a particular way. Verse 13, those, uh, don't be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words, no Iron Man suit needed. 
you will fly to meet the Lord in the air if you happen to be on the planet when Jesus returns. Okay? Now, this is really interesting, isn't it? Look, look with me at this. I want you to see that this passage on eschatology, which is the, the study of end times, or kind of, you know, how does the world end? What about heaven and, and hell? All that. We call that eschatology. That Paul is not aiming here to say, okay, welcome to eschatology class, students. We're going to talk about the last, the doctrine of the last things. His pastoral purpose in telling us about the end of the world and the return of Jesus, what's his purpose in doing that? Right? It is a comfort. It's the way you give hope. Are you ready for this? You want to hope? You, you want to give hope and encouragement to a grieving Christian? Give them eschatology. That's what he's saying. Okay? So you say, what's eschatology? Well, let's just walk through the passage, okay? Uh, first of all, we, we ought to grieve in hope for believers who have died. Sorry, it got pushed into the letters there. Grieve and hope, right? Paul says, we as Christians, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Unbelievers, they lose their loved ones. They grieve because they don't know what's going to happen or they think they'll never see their loved one again or whatever. We don't grieve that way as Christians. We, we have a unique form of grief as a Christian, don't we? we, we, we we're sad. We, we, we feel discouraged. We're, 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 um, we we um, experience loss but not in a way that we have no hope. And uh, so we, we grieve in hope for believers who have died. And we want to look, secondly, to Christ's death and resurrection as the guarantee that he will return with believers who have died. Look back at the text. He said, For if we believe that Jesus has died and rose again, even so God will bring with those who have, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. You say, did Jesus die on the cross? Yes, he did. Did he rise from the dead? Yes. You know what that means? Believers will rise again too someday. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee that believers will rise one day. That's the proof of it. That's the guarantee, and that's what he's saying there. All right. So we look to that. We meditate on that. And, and as sure as Jesus died and rose again, we can be confident that our loved ones who die in Christ will one day rise again. Thirdly, we understand the details of this, and this is where we get to nerd out a little bit. This is where we get to get in the weeds of eschatology and, and talk about some of this stuff. And uh, this week and probably next week, we're just going to kind of do an overview of end time stuff, because I know, I know you've been on the edge of your seat waiting for that in First Thessalonians. So let's look at what this passage teaches, and then we'll go from there, okay? First of all, those who are alive when Christ, Christ returns, when that's, that's wrong, it should be when Christ returns, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, now, who are those that have fallen asleep? What's that mean? Yeah, falling asleep is a metaphor for believers who have died. Okay, Falling asleep is a metaphor for believers who have died. So he's not saying they didn't really die. He's saying they died, but they died in Christ. Right. So those who have fallen asleep are believers who have died. And he says there, when Christ returns, uh, people, Christians that are alive on the planet when Jesus comes back are not going to go be with him before those who have already died. Okay, Those who have died will meet Christ first. It says here, Christ will descend from heaven accompanied by three audible alerts. I have no idea what this is going to be like. And, and uh, you know, like Terry is prone to saying, there's a lot of ink spilt in commentaries about all this. Here's what I know. It's going to be pretty obvious. It's going to be pretty obvious. Uh, Christ will descend from heaven, it says here, with a shout. What does a divine shout sound like? One that everybody hears, One that everybody hears probably, right? 
the voice of the archangel, so maybe he's the one shouting, or maybe it's Christ, or maybe it's God the Father, but the voice of the archangel, uh, we know that there's at least one archangel, according to Scripture, probably more, based on other passages. Uh, what's the name of the one archangel that we hear about in the Bible? Michael, right? We, we read about him in the book of Jude. And uh, anyway, so so Michael, the archangel, is likely involved in this return, or maybe it's a different archangel. And the trumpet of God, we, we see the trumpets of God back in Exodus. There were trumpets that, that announced the, the presence of God. And so maybe something similar like that. But the point is, there is going to be a trifecta of audible alerts when Jesus comes back. It is likely something that everybody will be aware of. Third, believers who have died will rise first. What is that going to be like? You say, well, you know, my great-grandmother was cremated and, you know, my grandpa is in, you know, some cemeteries, wherever, and I know. And God's going to do it anyway. Um, just, right, um, that these believers, the bodies of believers that have died, rise first. And then, if you happen to be alive... You think Six Flags is amazing. You think skydiving is amazing. You think the the, uh, the the rocket that they send up in West Texas. Who was the guy from Dude Perfect that just went up on it? Uh, you're, you, right? Who was that? Dude, no. Kobe went up. Yeah. Okay. The the Blue Origin rocket that they shoot up in West Texas. You think that's amazing? N- ain't nothing compared to this, right? So believers who are alive will fly up to meet the Lord in the air. So so picture this. You've got Bodies of William Tyndale, John Calvin, and and millions of unknown Christians arising and going to meet the Lord with the air. And then you've got people that are on the planet being caught up to meet the Lord with the air, in the air. And the Bible says, from then on, believers will always be with the Lord. Wow. Wow. Okay. And... Paul says, now that you got that in your head, (laughs) tell people about it that are grieving. Encourage them. Your grandma is going to fly. Right? And we will always be with the Lord once that happens. Okay? Comfort believers with these words. Now, I know that in bringing this up, you've got like 12 questions that just came up in your mind. So let's talk about a little bit of background, and then we're going to do more next time, okay? So let's just talk about some background here. Okay, let's go back to Christianity 101 here. First of all, you understand that people are comprised of an inner man and an outer man, or we might say a spirit and a body. We're all good on that, right? That a human being is a duplex, a body and a spirit, an outer man and inner man. Uh, a physical body, an eternal soul, we might say, okay? And the Bible uses all those uh, words interchangeably. Second Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, reminding us of those two things. Now, now remember, um, we get in all sorts of trouble when, when we, we don't think about that rightly, okay? Um, your body is just as much you as the spiritual part of you. 
Okay, and the spiritual part of you is just as much a you as your body. So it's both. And um, okay, so with that thought, um, what happens? What happens when people die? What, what is death? It's separation of the outer man from the inner man. It's a separation of the body and the spirit. Okay, so at death, the spirit and body. Separate. Now, let me show you just a few passages here to, to anchor these thoughts here. Turn with me to Psalm uh, 146. Uh, while you're turning there, I have a reference there to Genesis. Uh, this is when, uh, I think it's when, when Rachel is dying. And um, the narrator describes it as her soul is departing. Again, illustrating that at death, the spirit and the body separate. So Psalm 146, uh, verse 4, uh, verse 3 says, Do not trust in princes and mortal man in whom there is no salvation. Why shouldn't we trust in people? Verse 4, Because his spirit departs, he returns to the earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. Why shouldn't you trust in pe- people ultimately? Because people die. And when they die, what happens? Their spirit departs and their body decays. Okay, so we, we see that there's an example of that again. Rachel in Genesis 35, uh, 18, her soul was departing. R- remember, um, um, she's got one more, one more kiddo, and uh, she wants to call him Ben Anoy, son of my sorrow, because she's dying. And uh, her husband says, "No, we're going to call him Ben Yamin, son of my right hand." That's Benjamin, right? So that that section there, Rachel is dying. She dialed, She dies in childbirth, and it describes her death as her soul is departing. Right, illustrating that. Okay, so that's what happens at death. Death is a separation of spirit and body. Okay, so bodies decay in the ground. Right, we know that. Whether whether you you're put in a coffin, put in the ground, whether you're cremated, whatever, your your body begins to decay. And, and we you know we still say this at funerals, right? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. God told Adam way back in Genesis chapter 3, because you sinned, you're going to die someday. Do you remember what he says? For you are dust, and what? And to dust you shall return. Okay, that's talking about that, that physical death. Bodies decay, right? Um, well, what happens to the spirit? What happens to the spiritual part of people at death? Well, it depends. If you're an unbeliever, unbelievers, the spirits of unbelievers reside in Hades. Uh, let me show you this. Uh, turn with me to, to Luke chapter 16. As you're turning there, um, this is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember that Jesus told this story, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is, you know, into the world. He's got a lot of stuff. He's got money. Um, and he doesn't have the Lord in his life. Lazarus is a beggar that, that's outside his gate. And he eats the scraps that the dogs don't want to eat. And, um, and both of these men die. And then Jesus tells us of a scene where Abraham, who's obviously, you know, preceded uh, both of these guys in death, um, uh, they they go to this place, they get to have, uh, uh, Lazarus is with Abraham, so we we understand that Abraham and Lazarus are with the Lord in, in this place. And the rich man, it says in verse 23, goes to a place called Hades. Verse 23 of Luke 14, In Hades he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, 
saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. That just means at his side. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. So wherever, whatever Hades is, wherever it is, it's not a good place. It's a place of agony and torment. And that's where unbelievers reside when they die. Now, you'll remember that in Revelation chapter 20, at the final judgment, what does God do with death and Hades? He throws them in the lake of fire. The, the, the perm, what, what we think of as hell, as, as a permanent eternal hell, he takes those in, in death and Hades and he throws those into the lake of fire. So at that point of final judgment, unbelievers then are sent to the lake of fire. Okay, So unbelievers, we'll call it at, at this time in history, when they die, their body goes to the earth just like anybody but their spirit goes to what's called Hades. Interestingly enough, depending on your background, there is no reference in the Bible anywhere about some sort of purgatory, some sort of holding place, some sort of abyss. If you've read Dante's Inferno, we don't want to get our theology from Dante's Inferno. Interesting book, but don't get your theology from it. Um, okay, it, 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 they go to reside in Hades. And the spirits of believers reside with the Lord in paradise. You know this. The repentant thief on the cross. Jesus is dying, the repentant thief. Uh, he says, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. What does Jesus tell him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, 2, Corinthians 5, or 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, Paul says, uh, to be absent with the body is what? To be present with the Lord. So we know that as soon as death occurs in a believer, their body and spirit separate, their body goes into the ground, and their spirit immediately goes to be with the Lord in this place called paradise, or sometimes we just call it heaven, um, to be with him forever. Okay, are you with me? Is this making sense? Okay, so let's keep going then. So when the Lord returns, what's going to happen? So if, if I asked my kids last night, um, I said, where's Grandma Great? Uh, you remember Shirley Merrill? She died just a few months ago. And uh, where is she? And, and the right answer is, well, her, her body has decayed, right? But her spirit is with the Lord. And if you have a loved one who's died in the Lord, you can say, well, their, their, their body is at, you know, the Granbury Cemetery or wherever, wherever, right? But their spirit is with the Lord. Okay. Now, when Jesus returns, <laughs> watch this, this is great. When, when the Lord returns, what happens? The dead bodies of believers are raised and glorified, being reunited with their spirits. You got it? Raised and glorified, being reunited with their spirits. We'll look more at 1 Corinthians 15 next time, which really parallels uh, 1 Thess that we saw there. But the dead bodies of believers are raised and glorified, reuniting with their spirits. Secondly, believers who are alive are glorified. You say, what's glorified mean? Glorified is when God finishes the work of salvation in that he takes our broken, uh, fleshly, sinful body that's sort of a work in process and, he, and, and through a, a final act of his grace, he transforms our body to perfectly resent, resemble the Lord Jesus. So we are like Christ, not just in the spiritual part of us, but in our bodies as well. And thus we will fully and for all of eternity reflect the nature and character of Jesus. Uh, 
Paul talks about the Philippians, right? He will transform the body of our humble state into a body in exact conformity with his glory. Now, the, the text that we just looked at at 1 Thessalonians says that all believers are going to meet the Lord in the air and remain with him. So think about this. So Jesus comes back, right? He comes back at this, this event that Paul is describing in Thessalonians. The spirits of believers that have already died are with him, right? That's what it says. They're always with the Lord. So those spirits are there. But then what happens to their bodies? Their bodies um, emerge glorified and are reunited to meet the Lord in the air with him. And then those of us that might be on the planet, we're still alive, we haven't died yet, in Christ, then those believers are raptured. Now this is where we get the term rapture. If you've heard that before, maybe it's a bit fuzzy, uh, if you look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, when Paul says those who are alive and remain are caught up, the word caught up in Latin is raptura. And we just bring that into English, and that's where we get the word rapture. Okay, And uh, this event we affectionately call the rapture today. And at a future time, unbelievers will be judged in Revelation 20, and we'll look at that next time. Okay? Does that give you a little bit of background on all this? And I know you're on the edge of your seat. You're like, but what about this? But what about this? But what? Come back next week and we'll talk about it. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we're thankful that we do have a future hope that even when we grieve and mourn over uh, people that we love that have died in Christ, that we don't grieve without hope. We don't grieve in an immoderate way because we know they're with the Lord and that we will see them again on this incredible day that we just read about. Father, I pray that we would encourage one another as we think about eschatology, the doctrine of last things, and that we would have a, uh, an abiding confidence and a secure hope because we know that you're coming back and that believers will always be with you and that as sure as Jesus rose from the dead, we know that this day will occur and what an amazing, amazing day that will be. Until then, Father, help us to live in a way that demonstrates love for one another, that is attractive and even um, conducive to the gospel for outsiders and unbelievers. And uh, might, we, might we live in a way, Lord, that uh, as Jesus said, all people will know that we are your disciples because of how we love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.